Harvey, welcome to Australia via Zoom and thanks for joining us and thanks for your time. Well, thank you so much, Alan and David, for having me. It's a real pleasure to be with you and your, uh, your audience. Avi, there is so much we could talk about and so much you have commented on. So I've, as I've mentioned, I've put the link to your website up already so people can visit later. So, so let, let's start with the current unity government. And I guess we should put that in brackets with a question mark. How is it going and how do you see the short term future panning out? Wow. Um, yeah, I would not call it a unity government at all. Basically, this is an everything but uh, Benjamin Netanyahu government, where the only glue that sticks all of the parties together is that desire slash hatred or uh, animosity towards uh, Benjamin Netanyahu to do everything in their power that he not be prime minister. And as everyone knows, that being the only glue, there is, not, there is no ideological agenda that ties any of these parties together. And it's a very dangerous government for Israel uh, because you have, in a sense, right-wing parties, the Prime Minister's Party, Nassali Bennett, and Gidon Sar's Party, New Hope, uh, both right-wingers and their parties, right-wing parties, uh, in a sense, giving legitimacy and working with parties like the anti-Zionist Meretz Party, or not, whether it's not an anti-Zionist party, but a party that has members who are anti-Zionists within their ranks um, in the Knesset, as well as the Muslim Brotherhood Ram Party in the government. Uh, and obviously that makes this a uh, government where you can't get anything done. And uh, the, they basically said, because we know we have these differences, well, we're not gonna deal with ideological issues. We're just gonna deal with social issues. However, in today's environment, specifically for Israel, in terms of security, political issues, everything is an ideological issue. There is no vacuum. Everyday ideological issues come up. And in a sense, even though Naftali Bennett touts himself as a right winger, the person who actually is in charge of foreign policy in this government is Yair Lapid, who is not a right winger. I mean, he claims that he's center right. I will claim that he is center left. Um, and he is doing tremendous harm to Israel's foreign policy. Just in the short few weeks we've already had, basically undoing many of the long-term uh, um, uh, accomplishments in, is for Israel geopolitically that uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu was able to accomplish for Israel. So again, every issue is ideological, and that's just on the geo that's just on the geopolitical security front. Um, so it's going to be very dangerous, obviously. The, the, what I like to say is short term, um, this government is probably going to last a year, maybe two. It's definitely not going to last four years. I'll be, ple I'll be pleasantly surprised if it does. Um, as someone who cares about the, the, the Jewish character of the state of Israel, of uh, Israel applying sovereignty, not just in Judea and Samaria, but acting properly as the sovereign throughout Israel in the Negev, in the Galil, in Yafo, in Ramla, in Lod. Uh, on the one hand, this government is going to try to do some good things, some that, that the nationalist public will, will, will feel like it's a right-wing government, and I'm sure they will accomplish at some things, but it's going to come at a very, very steep price where many of the security geopolitical issues are going to be skewed left to the detriment of Israel and be harmful for Israel, as well as societal issues and uh, harming the Jewish character of the state of Israel when so many of the government's parliamentarians and ministers come from a very left-wing anti-Jewish agenda as well, which is very interesting. One of Israel's ministers, uh, the head of the Labor Party, Mirav Michaeli, I think she was actually uh, on a, a television program a few years ago back in Australia. I'm gonna bring you into the current events of Israel's government and it was dealing with family issues. And I posted this video before showing how dangerous the, 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 the anti-family agenda is. And here she's, she was on an Australian uh, television program, basically touting her support for the government taking control away from parents over children. That parents are dangerous. Ima, I think her line exactly was, the home is the most dangerous place for children or the parents are the most dangerous for children. 
Um, that's the anti-family agenda. That's not even dealing with Jewish identity for the state. That's not even dealing with our borders or with our enemies on a security level. That's the basis of day-to-day -day life. That is the, the leftist agenda of, uh, she's now transportation minister. Um, and that's part of the agenda that this government is, we're, we're going to be dealing with. I mean, hopefully they won't do too many things that will be anti-family while she's in power. But again, one of the, the issues of the agenda that this uh, anti-Bibi Netanyahu government may have to deal with. So I like to be realistic. On the one hand, there are going to be things that this government does that will be okay and maybe even good that Bibi Netanyahu did not accomplish. I'm all for that. And if they do that, I will say thank you. Uh, on the other hand, the price is going to be steep. And the, and, and the price is on the geopolitical security issues that we're not going to necessarily be able to be pushing forward and be in a more gentlemental situation, as well as societal uh, societal uh, issues as well. How's that yes, for a short answer? Yeah, I'll, I want to come back to, the, to Netanyahu, but I, just to touch on the issue of the day, how, what's the government's reaction to Ben and Jerry's been? Are they united or is there a few cracks starting to appear? Okay, very great, great question, Alan. I wouldn't say cracks, but I will say this is definitely something, a, a very surprising reality due to this very weird coalition government. Whereas, and, and I'm, I'm, I call myself an optimistic realist or a realistic optimist, right? I'll, I call things out as they are, but I, I try to look at things both in the historical perspective and the long-term perspective. And when there are problems, I will say the problems, but I will also point out the, the, the good points that have to be focused upon. And this actually is a good point. The good point is for the first time, you have an issue of a company, a, a, an international company supporting the BDS, boycott, divestment, sanctions movement. And whereas usually you would have the left-wing parties and representatives of the left-wing supporting the boycotting of Israel, because they are part of the Israeli government, they have either been silenced or some of them have even come out against the, the, the Ben and Jerry's boycott. So there is something very interesting and, and positive where here we have left wingers having to take the stand of not being able to support the, the boycott. And whereas if this would have been a Netanyahu right-wing nationalistic government, you would have seen many of these left-wing politicians, in addition to many of Israel's uh, media, um, establishment media, not necessarily going against or strongly going against Ben and Jerry's because they'd be bringing up the left-wing talking points against Israel being in Judea and Samaria. But because this is a government where the left is part of this government, well, the media is now totally on board coming out against Ben and Jerry's. And all of Israel has basically been mobilized on a public sp uh, sphere as well to be against this very uh, prominent anti-Israel act by an international company. So this is definitely something very strange <laughs> because of the reality of this government, but it's a positive, a positive strange thing that is a direct outcome of this government. And do you think that, uh, that that might be because it's a fairly new government? Because ultimately, perhaps when they settle in, um, any one member of Knesset can almost uh, hold the government hostage on an issue of their choice, can't they? So um, do you think this, this might just be a... a a, a novelty because it's the first issue that's cropped up um, and they don't want to step out of line too much? That's a good question, but the answer to your question is actually correcting the question because this is not the first issue that has come up that could potentially have been brought down this government. I mean, most of you might be familiar, and if you're not familiar, the first major issue that came up for this government was the citizenship law, right? The national citizenship law, which, uh, which basically, just to give some background to people, Israel has a problem where for decades, the Arabs took advantage of, uh, of Israeli citizens, citizenship not having laws, that if an Arab from Judea and Samaria or Gaza or even Saudi Arabia married an Israeli Arab, well, they were able to get 
Israeli citizenship and be able to live in Israel. And in that way, especially the Arab Muslim Bedouin community, they were able to, to, to grow their population by exorbitant numbers because they would bring in nine, 10 women to marry 10 wives from all over the Arab world. And then each wife has 10 children. And uh, that was booming their population. And some, many of those second generation that were able to see through and become Israeli citizens then became terrorists harming other innocent Israeli citizens. So Israel came up with a law to stop that, not allow this uh, being able to just marry an Arab Israeli and automatically become an Israeli citizen. So there was this law and that law, you have two major parties in this government were against this law. One is again, the leftist Meretz party. And the second one is the Muslim Brotherhood Ram party, whose constituents are the Arab Muslim Bedouin who were the most to take advantage of, uh, of that law not being in place. That law almost brought down the government because the law did not pass or has not passed yet. And even since that issue, a number of other issues. Every day there's another issue that potentially brings down this government. Um, so on, on the one hand, the answer to your question is, it, when an issue comes up that is too much for any one party to deal with, that's when the government will fall. But we don't know what that issue will be because in the meantime, they are too much enjoying being in power in government and none of them and, and having Netanyahu not in power and none of them want to give up this privilege and whatever time they can have in power. So yeah. it depends what issue it's going to be that will bring it down. I think it definitely is going to happen. The question is only what the issue will be, what, what will bring it about and how long we have to wait until that happens. Okay, I'll, uh, I'll hand over to David. If you've got any questions, you'll need to unmute yourself, David. That's it. Yep. Um, look, Abby, thank you so much for joining us uh, this evening. Uh, during the conflict between Israel and uh, Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad uh, earlier in the year, perhaps the most worrying observation that I would make is the way we saw Arab riots emerge within Israel itself, Arab-Israeli citizens. Can you give us your assessment of, of what happened and how big a domestic problem has been exposed? I'm going to answer from the end. And I am very happy that you phrased it in that way. How big of a domestic problem has been exposed? And first of all, the key word in what you're saying is exposed. I think the problem that has been exposed is key to moving forward for Israel. And while what we witnessed is horrible and painful and extremely hard for many Jews around the world, and especially Israelis, Jewish Israelis, to internalize like what in the world just happened, but it is critical that it did happen. That is, again, I'm the realistic optimist. I, I, I'm someone who for years has been telling people, folks, this conflict is not about Judea and Samaria. It's not about Gaza. This is a religious conflict. You're talking about an ideology within the Muslim world, not all Muslims, but an ideology that exists within the Muslim world that cannot tolerate Jews having sovereignty and living in our own ancestral homeland. That ideology does not stop at, at, a, at a designed border. It exists within an Arab Muslim population around the world, whether one lives in Riyadh, in Paris, in Ramallah, in Gaza City, or in Lod, or in Haifa, or Jerusalem. And the fact that the Arab Muslims who are Israeli citizens, who have freedom and equality, and that they work in our hospitals, that they work as Knesset members, they work as judges, they work as police officers, that within that population of Israeli citizens with total freedom and equality, it is critical that that has begun to be exposed for the Israeli population to wake up and realize our conflict is not about land. It's not if we get out of Gaza, we'll have peace. It's not if we destroy every settlement in Judea and Samaria and just put up a big fence and a border and say, hey, world, we now have peace. There are no Jews in Judea and Samaria. Let's have hummus in Damascus. No, 
that not is not going to solve the problem because the diagnosis of our issue is misdiagnosed. And as any doctor knows, if you give a, a medicine or a treatment to a misdiagnosed problem, well, no matter what the treatment or solution you give is, it's not going to work. Hence, the two-state solution is not a solution to the correct problem because the problem is not about land. The problem is about the ideology within the Muslim world to not allow the Jewish people to live and be sovereign in our homelands. Hence, the problem exists within our own Arab Muslim population who are Israeli citizens. So this is all part of the wake-up process that is necessary in order for there to be enough public support within Israel to finally take care of the problem. And I want to make myself perfectly clear. I have nothing against Arab Muslims. I have nothing against Arab Muslims who are Israeli citizens. I have a problem with Arab Muslims who are Israeli citizens who, instead of being grateful for the freedom and equality they have as Israeli citizens, which they cannot have in any other Arab Muslim country across the Middle East, because if you're a Sunni Muslim living in a Shiite country, you're persecuted. If you're a Shiite Muslim living in a Sunni country, you're persecuted. Women don't have free rights and equality. Gays don't have free rights and equality. The only place where a Sunni Muslim, a Shiite Muslim, a female Muslim, a gay Muslim can live day in and day out without the fear of being killed and having freedom and equality is the Jewish state of Israel. So any Arab Muslim who agrees in living peacefully with us, knowing how grateful and blessed they are to live in the Jewish state of Israel, they can live peacefully with us. But that ideology of getting rid of the Jewish state of Israel, which we were shown that plenty of Arab Muslim Israeli citizens abide by because they willingly, willingly used violence against their own Jewish neighbors, neighbors literally who lived down the hall from them, like in the cities of Lod and Ramla, where you had neighbors crashing down the doors of their, of their Jewish neighbors trying to come in and harm them, which didn't make the headlines, but that happened. Well, that is a problem that has to be dealt with. And it's only going to be dealt with when there is enough understanding within the Jewish-Israeli public to deal with that problem. And not enough Israelis understand it. And because of what happened in the latest conflict, more Israelis do. Unfortunately, more bad has to happen until more Israelis wake up for us to really uh, have the leadership and the decision-making to deal with the problem. I mean, does that uh, make Harabayat, the Temple Mount, the, the tip of this issue? If you say it's a, it's a religious issue, we have seen some ugly scenes on, uh, on Harabayat. Uh, there is always the tension as to whether Jews can pray there, whether they can even go up there. And of course, we had recently Mansour Abbas uh, who's now part of the government, um, saying essentially that um, Jews have no rights uh, on the Temple Mount or even at the Kotel. Um, how's that being perceived? How's that being pursued? It's being ignored. It's being ignored because most of uh, Jewish leadership around the world, even religious leadership, and most of Israeli political leadership just sweep that issue under the rug because they're all under the assumption that if we just appease the, the Muslim world, well, we'll have peace. And I come from a totally different perspective, a totally different understanding of reality. And again, I'm sure you know, you all know of Dr. Mordechai Kedar. I'm a big chassid of his, a big student of his and listening to, to what he has to say. He's been an IJA. Right. So, right. So understanding that this is a religious issue, my perspective is the only way to pursue a peaceful future for all of us. I'm not just talking for Israel. And I, 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 I want to take advantage of this moment, actually, to, to emphasize Israel is the front lines of the whole freedom loving world. The way we're dealing both, I'm going to bring in something else in a second, the, the way we're dealing with the Muslim world, as well as the ideological, progressive, woke world, we're basically on the front lines for the whole freedom-loving world. Australia, England, America, Europe, all right? So in terms of the Muslim world, the the uh, the concept that we have to appease the Muslim world, that anytime they threaten violence, well, if we just appease, we'll have peace. No, it's exactly the opposite. Whenever we appease the threats and violence of the Muslim world, that just makes their appetite 
to achieve even more and push their desires even more, that pushes peaceful coexistence further away for all of us. The only way to achieve a peaceful future with the Muslim world, not just for Israel, but in Australia, America, Europe, Canada, etc., is if our leaders stand up and throw down the lay of the law, saying no more appeasement. There is an equal law applied to all of us. And when it comes to Israel, the only way we will achieve that, and I believe Israel should be on the front lines, is the first step has to be the Temple Mount. Freedom of access and freedom of worship must be allowed for all on the Temple Mount. Um, uh, there's a famous poem uh, by, um, uh, uh, by an Israeli poet, uh, uh, Greenswag, I forgot, I forgot his full name at the moment, forgive me, where he says, whoever controls the Temple Mount controls the future, right? In dealing, with, in dealing with the world, the Muslim world. The fact that we allow the Muslims to dictate the laws on the Temple Mount, that there are, I think, 12 entrances to the Temple Mount, and 11 of them are open to the Muslims. Non-Muslims are only have access to one. Uh, Muslims have access to the Temple Mount whenever they want. There are only certain hours in the day for non-Muslims, Jews and Christians, allowed to visit the Temple Mount. And obviously, prayer, at least publicly or loudly, for non-Muslims is forbidden. Well, so long as we appease these, these dictates of the Muslim world, we're pushing peace further away. The solution to achieving a great peaceful future with the Muslim world is by finally the Israeli government standing up for what is right and just for all of humanity saying, hey, this is the holiest place for the Jewish people. It also happens to be holy to other people in the world. It's one of the, the, the most sought after tourist attractions. It is 100% wrong that there is discrimination between all non, for all non-Muslims. All gates should be open to all. Access should be the same for all. Freedom of worship. I mean, it was it was Isaiah and the prophets who said that the Temple Mount is supposed to be a place for all nations to be able to pray. The only way to give the Muslim world the message that they can no longer threaten us with violence and get away with their terror is actually with the first step being freedom of access and worship for all on the Temple Mount. So, and once the Muslim world gets that message, they will threaten World War III. They always will. But they're pushing to World War III no matter what the Western world does. And the way to stop it as soon as possible is finally to stand up for justice and equality and true freedom of, of access and true freedom of religion starting on the Temple Mount. But until that happens, the whole world is going to continue to falling, falling over ourselves backwards, continuing to appease the threats and violence of the Muslim world. We're not only are the ones who suffer, the Jews and non-Muslims, but plenty of Muslims who want to get on with their lives and not feel threatened and feel the violence within their own communities. Avi, I see there's a bunch of questions, but I can't let you go without making a comment on one more big change which has occurred recently. And that, of course, is the change in the US administration. So can we get your perception on the change, the Biden-Harris administration as it affects Israel? Yes, sure. First of all, I think it is important to understand just two years ago, we were probably living in the most idyllic reality, geopolitical reality ever, not just for Israel, but for the freedom-loving world with a President Trump as President of the United States of America, pushing America to in, in the right direction, at least that's my opinion, pushing in the right direction in so many ways, together with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu being Prime Minister in Israel, for Israel. And it wasn't just to the benefit of Israel, the benefit of the whole Middle East. Again, the Abraham Accords was about understanding the reality of the Middle East, that the only reason peace is not happening here is not because of Israel and the Jewish people, it's because of the terror and violence of a so-called fake cause called Palestine based on a bunch of lies. And with putting that issue aside, there are plenty of Arab Muslim countries who are very interested in moving forward and normalizing relations with the Jewish state of Israel to benefit their societies as well. And that is what was happening under the President Trump, uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu regime, pushing our whole region into a better, a better future. Now with the Biden administration in America and this crazy government we have in Israel, 
everything is going backwards. So on the one hand, I can be pessimistic and say this is horrible for the world. However, again, I'm a long-term thinker and I'm an optimist when it comes to it. So while things are going backwards, to the extent that the Biden administration is walking back all of the fabulous initiatives that Trump and Netanyahu made in order to push peace, a true peace in the Middle East possible via the Abraham Accords, the Biden administration is is pushing everything backwards. It, just to give one example, the Trump administration set up like a, a, a multi-billion dollar Abraham Accords fund to push forward um, joint projects between Israel and those countries that normalized relations with Israel. That's to the benefit of the whole Middle East, right? That's about pushing a peaceful future, right? So you'd think any administration interested in a peaceful future for the Middle East, they would support that. No, the Biden administration shut, the, pulled the cord on that, pulled all the money from that fund. You say you're you're interested in peace, yet you're pulling the cord on on the most uh, in, uh, the one of the best policies instituted to push forward a future a peaceful future for the whole region. So unfortunately, the negatives are there and things are going to go backwards. But just as I mentioned before, in terms of the recent Gaza conflict, which, which exposed that Israel has a problem with a percentage of the Arab Muslim Israeli citizen population. So what we're experiencing now is a wake up process for all of humanity, for the whole freedom loving world, where we're going to have to experience this horrendous Biden administration, this crazy Israeli government where things are going to go backwards separately and together to wake up more and more citizens to be empowered to move forward in the right direction. We're seeing masks fall off everywhere. All right. And that's, that's what we're experiencing. So I don't like focusing on the negative. I like pointing out the negative, but, but highlighting that it is obviously I'm, I'm a believer. I'm a religious Jew. Things are necessary in what's going on in order to wake people up so that we are all enabled and empowered to move forward to the better future that we know is possible because we're all more educated and understanding of reality. Yeah, thank you, Abby. You're building a fan, a fan base as you speak. And I'll just mention to people that if they want to see more of what they're getting tonight, they can go to your website, pulseofisrael.com, and you make these fabulous little videos. Some, some of them are, are a couple of minutes, some of them are about 10 minutes, 10 minutes or so. And, uh, and, and that uh, you explain things so, so well. We'll go to questions. Uh, I've got Ruben, Dennis, Ron, Andy, and Terry. So uh, Ruben, you're first. Please unmute yourself and ask your question. Hi, Avi, thank you for your presentation. Um, Avi, you mentioned it's a religious, uh, but what difference, religious war, nothing to do with land. 100% agree, it's nothing to do with land, but I don't consider Judaism a religion. We are a, a political entity. Um, the, the Torah should be tough, is our statute law, etc., etc. So, so, so we have an obligation uh, as a Jewish nation to reinstate Zion. Okay, if we, if we can't at the moment build a better Mikdash, at least clear the way for it. The, 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 uh, the objective of, of uh, uh, the mosque being there is to, is to say, look, you know, we don't count anymore. This is going to take over and to prevent us from doing it. So why do we have to put up with such things? First of all, thank you so much for, for the question. What what exactly are you asking that you want me to answer? What, why, why are we allowing the reality to be the reality? Yeah, I think so. I think that's what he's, Reuven's just muted himself or, or he's been okay. muted. Um, I think right. that's what he's saying is. Sorry, okay, great. Um, well, yeah, so now what I'm asking is, why do we need to put up, okay, they're going to make a clamor, whatever we do, right? So why do we have, why can't we just say, you know, no, okay, the Temple Mount is no more access, finished. Hmm. Okay. All right. So, so first of all, I'll deal, I'll deal with the first point and then, and then answer, answer your question. The first point is, I agree with you that the Jewish people, we're not, a, we're not really a religion. We're, we're a nation. A hundred percent. It's important to understand what, what we're experiencing today. I think it was Bernard Lewis who, who, who called it the, the clash of civilizations. Um, what we're experiencing today is the class of civilization, and you're talking about the the Muslim the, the the Muslim desire to overtake the world against 
the whole rest of us, the Jewish world, the Christian world, etc. So wh whether you want to call it a religious world or a religious war or couch it in whatever other terms, that that that's what's going on. Right? Putting the semantics aside, asking your question, answering your question, how do, why do we why do we put up with this reality? Well, um, first of all, I'm not putting up with the reality. All right, that's why I'm vocal. That's my way of not putting up with reality. Understanding that there are two levels we're dealing with in order to change our reality. The one level is the political level, right? Because in the end of the day, we need the politicians to make the decisions. If the politicians don't make the decisions, well, no matter what we say, we'll make a difference. But in order for the politicians to make decisions, we have to educate the masses to put the pressure upon the politicians to then make the correct decisions. So today there is no public pressure. There is very little understanding of these issues within the public to even put, to even have pressure put on politicians to make the right decisions. Like with all my respect for politicians, at the end of the day, most of them are in their seats, just trying to keep their seats and trying to do the best job they can, but they're not very educated about every issue. And whatever interest groups are there besides them are telling them how to vote for any, for any issue. Thankfully, in Israel, more and more people with an ideological back, uh, backbone are, are, are running for Israel's Knesset. So we're getting, with, with each year, we're getting more and more solid ideological representatives to push for the correct initiatives to make the changes we want to happen. But again, in order for there to be uh, enough politicians to be raising their hands for the votes we believe are necessary to change the reality, we have to educate more and more of the public. And that's basically the role that I, that I, that I pride myself on trying to play by being a voice to wake up more and more people. Uh, and two things, because like you, Ruvain, for instance, or Roger, you're one of these people, you understand that already. Well, there's two different levels of educating people. One is the level to educate people of information that they didn't know before. And the other is people who know this information, but because we're such a minority, we are usually afraid to voice our opinions because we are always delegitimized and, uh, and, and silenced, whether people are silencing us or we just don't feel comfortable in the social environment to voice our opinions because they're not politically correct. So I pride myself on being that voice to be the non-political correct person to help the person at the water cooler, at the Shabbat table, or at even the synagogue to be able to feel confident in his position and possibly even voice it, even though he's going to get attacked by everyone around them because they don't understand. <laughs> so the process we're going through is an educational process that is necessary in order we get enough support to then be able to have our politicians make the decisions necessary. We still have to call them out when they're not making those decisions, but we can't delude ourselves to be thinking, well, they should be making these decisions where most of the populace isn't even there asking for them to make those decisions. Mm, yeah, well said. Dennis, your turn. Please unmute yourself. I'll just say we've got quite a few people lined up, so we'll try to keep the answers, uh, the questions and answers brief as possible, please. <laughs> and I might just mention, I forgot to mention, just please, single questions, um, no double barrel ones because they, they take up too much time, unfortunately. Dennis. Thank you. Avi, I watch quite a few of your broadcasts, so I'm very familiar with your views. There's been, or the, the now opposition leader, Benjamin Netanyahu, has made a lot of uh, noise about the fact that the new government is weakening Israel's defence stance, both vis-a-vis -vis Iran and also with regard to the Palestinians. How weakened is this government or are they going to follow the same military pursuits in defense of Israel that the Netanyahu government did? Okay, great question. I want to start by throwing a positive in there, all right? Because I think life is complex. Not everything is black and white. There was always, there was always gray. Um, what's, what, what, what's a positive? What's a gray out there? I'm going to delineate a few examples in a minute of showing uh, what opposition leader Benjamin Panyao is talking about. Before I do so though, one example of a positive of this government is uh, last week or two weeks ago, when the Gaza uh, terrorists were putting up uh, bal uh, terror balloons to fly over into Israel, and then create uh, fires, arson, the terror fires, and destroying Israeli land and potentially harming Israeli civilians. Um, that was the first time the Israeli government ever acted 
by firing upon the terror balloons. All right, and it was the, the, the it, was, it was this government, this crazy government with with, with Naftali Bennett as prime minister, who said Naft um, Benj Benjamin Netanyahu as prime minister never allowed the Israeli military to respond as forcefully to the terror balloons. We will. All right. So this just, that's just throwing in some gray into this whole situation. So for that, I have to take my hat off and say kudos to Prime Minister ben, uh, Naftali Bennett for treating a terror balloon like a rocket in, in terms of let, letting Hamas and Islamic Jihad in Gaza know we're not going to tolerate anything, not even the terror balloons. All right. That's one thing. Now, we have to couch it like this. A major difference between Benjamin Netanyahu and most other politicians in Israel is Netanyahu's long-term strategic brilliance that many other Israeli politicians don't have. So with many of my own personal complaints that I voiced over the years against Netanyahu for things he didn't do or didn't do well enough, whether security-wise, whether dealing with the Israeli justice system or with Judean Samaria, sovereignty, etc., etc., with all of those things, he still far outweighs any other Israeli politician in terms of strategic, long-term geopolitical thinking to keep Israel safe. So while on the one hand, what Naftali Bennett in terms of treating a, a terror balloon like a rocket is good, that's not as important as standing up to the United States of America against another bad Iranian nuclear deal. Okay. And this government, the foreign minister of Israel, Yair Lapid, who it, it embarrasses me, I feel embarrassed to even call him foreign minister that he's even in that position. Basically, he's running around the world. In a sense, he basically said, we're not going to do anything without your permission, America. He said that straight out, which whether that means, one, you go with the deal, we're going to live with your deal. Well, we'll, we'll voice our, our opposition, but we're going to live with the deal. Or two, we're, if we want to do anything against Iran, well, we're going to ask for your, position, your permission first. Whereas uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, he never did that. There might have been some things he, he told uh, American governments beforehand just to keep an even keel, but he never asked for permission. If Israel needs to do something in order to defend itself, we will do it whether America is giving us that permission or not. So there's that strategic thinking and standing up for the best interest of Israel, taking into consideration the risks of geopolitics. That's something that Netanyahu has that this government does not have. It was a huge mistake for, for Yair Lapid, foreign minister, to say publicly, oh, we will let you know everything first, basically saying we're not going to do anything without your permission. So that's geopolitical long-term mistake number one that weakens Israel with regards, to, with regards to, uh, to Iran. The second thing in terms of long-term thinking has to do with Israel's geopolitical situation with European countries. As we all know, even though the established Jewish world and Jewish organizations all love to talk about how Germany is a friend of Israel, how France is a friend of Israel, how Britain is a friend of Israel. Well, when push comes to shove to United Nations votes, many times those countries do not side with Israel. They vote against Israel. And over the years, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu strategically built up strategic relationships with Eastern European countries like Poland and Hungary, and some of the other Russia satellite countries. Now, many Jews have a problem with that, especially many Jews abroad, America, uh, Britain, Australia, they have a problem with that because in, in the Jewish eye, in the establishment Jewish eye, these Eastern European countries have a lot of baggage of anti-Semitism. Therefore, it is wrong for Israel, the Jewish state of Israel, to cozy up and develop these strategic relationships with Eastern European countries. And they've always been against that. And that's the line that Foreign Minister Yair Lapid is now going. He's now been having meetings with European leaders. He, crea he created a diplomatic crisis with Poland, one of Israel's best friends in the United Nations. It is always voting with Israel in the United Nations, as opposed to France, Britain, and Germany. That's Poland with all of the history, with all of the baggage. And, we just, and our foreign minister just had a, a diplomatic crisis with Poland. And on the other hand, he's meeting all the Western European leaders. Well, where, well, the Netanyahu government, hey, says, listen, long, short-term and long-term, the United Nations is a danger for Israel. Therefore, we have to develop relations with the countries based on interests, where it's our own, where we have, we have the, the same interests on the world stage to vote with one another, regardless of the baggage, historic baggage, 
as opposed to just going according to what the, the feeling that, oh, we have to stick with the Western European countries, even though they put on a show of being close to Israel, but yet they vote against us and we, we can't trust them. It's the Western European governments who are giving billions of dollars to anti-Israel nonprofit organizations day in and day out. So while they profess to be pro-Israel and the Jewish world and the established Jewish world loves being cozy cozy with the with Western European countries, but on the day to day, it's what, what what are your actions? And the actions of these Western European governments is funding the ultimate destruction of Israel via anti-Israel organizations. And uh, right, so that's so that's something that Foreign Minister Lapid, whether he understands or wants to ignore, he's creating extreme short-term and long-term damage to Israel. Because if we lose the votes of the Eastern European countries in the United Nations, we're up a creek without a paddle. And that's the direction he's pushing Israel to go to because of his weak understanding and the more leftist understanding of the world, which ignores the reality of geopolitics. Mm, yes, thank you. Uh, Ron, uh, you can unmute yourself, and then we've got Andy, Terry, Gary, and Dave. Hi, good evening, Abby. Hello. Good evening. Good evening. Oh, um, yeah, um, Bennett is the Prime Minister of Israel, but the impression I get is that um, it's a bit of a kind of Volkswagen Beetle government where you've got the engine at the back, and Lapid is actually running the show and the agenda with um, with uh, the European Union, with uh, Tisha B'Av, um, you know, Nahara Bayat, with um, America and so on. And uh, he seems to be, so is he the de facto prime minister of Israel, running it from the back, the engine at the back? Well, I think I think you in uh, Australia and uh, the, the, and you in Britain will understand this since you guys understand coalition politics. How much power can a prime minister of six seats have in a coalition of 61. I mean, we're just talking basic math. You don't have to be, you don't have to be a magician or, or, or a brain scientist to understand the real day-to-day -day politics of managing a coalition. So Lapid is the head of the biggest party in the coalition of 17 seats. Naftali Bennett is, is, the, is the head of a party of six. So even though he is prime minister, on the one hand, to run a coalition of 61 when you're just the head of a party of six, well, you're talking about unbelievable challenges to push forward your agenda, just your own personal agenda of your party. Forget about the agenda of your coalition with so many conflicts of interest within that own coalition. And then on top of that, you have Yair Lapid who is in charge of Israel's foreign ministry. Now, just having being in charge of Israel's foreign ministry, meaning he is the de facto person in charge of Israel's foreign policy. Well, then how much input does the prime minister of a party of six have on Israel's foreign policy? Yeah, yeah, your Lapid is in charge of all the budgets. He's in charge of all the trips. He's in charge of all the messaging on a foreign policy level. Um, so it's just the reality of, of the ground. Now, I'm going to go back. I'm going to take a step back and give a little fuller picture of this. Over the years, Netanyahu has been criticized for neutering Israel's foreign ministry. And little by little, he was taking out uh, initiatives and projects that in a sense belong in the foreign ministry and pushing them off to different ministers under, under new created uh, ministries or, or whatever it is. But he was basically neutering Israel's foreign ministry, and he was he was criticized for that all the time. And what this guy, what Yair Lapid is trying to do, is undo all of that. He's trying to take everything away that Netanyahu took out of the foreign ministry and bring it back to the foreign ministry. Do you have to understand what this is about? Because Netanyahu understood, working in politics since he first began as prime minister back in 1996, that unfortunately Israel's foreign ministry does not take orders from the prime minister. It acts independently, and it is an independent arm of the leftist ideological agenda of Israel on the world stage. So Netanyahu understood in order for him as prime minister to push forward his ad political agenda for the benefit of strengthening Israel, he had to be in charge of Israel's foreign policy and then whatever damage the foreign ministry does, well, it will it would do because it wasn't in those, those situations. But the purpose, the strategic purpose of him neutering the foreign ministry was to bolster the, the, the foreign policy of Israel so that it went according to what the populace voted for in having a Likud-led 
Bibi Netanyahu government, because if the foreign ministry would be totally in power of foreign policy, no matter how many times we voted for Netanyahu, foreign policy would be led by the foreign ministry with very little input of the prime minister. And that's even when the prime minister has 40 seats. So that's just giving a little real politic mm -hmm. insight to the situation. And basically what mm -hmm. Lapid's doing is he's bringing everything backwards, undoing everything uh, uh, Netanyahu did in order to help Israel on the foreign policy uh, perspective. And again, Naftali Bennett has nothing to say because he's just the, the leader of a party of six and Lapid is the head of the foreign ministry. Um, so that's, the, I hope that gives a little bit of more <laughs> understanding. Yeah, fasc fascinating stuff, Avi. Andy, uh, Andy's in Israel, Avi. So she doesn't come from there as you will hear. So Andy, please unmute yourself if you have and ask your question. Okay, thank you. Um, July of 2018, Israel passed the basic law where Israel is a nation, the state of the Jewish people. Um, some of our Druze members, our friends um, and Bedouins don't like this law. What, are your, what is your thought on it? Fabulous question. Uh, my thought on it is, I'll give one word and then, um, and then and then extrapolate politicized okay the nation state law of israel was politicized it is an extremely extremely important law you have to understand the major and then i'll and i'll, and I'll deal with the with, with with the with the complaints about it and the especially from from uh, israeli uh the jews community who are a very loyal population um, but I'll start from the, I'll start from the end. It does not cause any problems to any population. It does not, does not make any difference to anyone's life. If he's not a Jewish Israeli, no, no difference whatsoever. Makes no difference on anyone's life, short term or long term. If you're not Jewish in Israel. Okay. Meaning that's how it was politicized. It, um, the, and what was politicized about it? It was politicized because it did not use the word equal equality for all citizens that's it that's how it was it was basically said because uh the equality of all citizens was not part of this nation state law therefore equal israel is uh not an equal place and it is discriminating if you're not jewish lie total lie politicized in order to generate uh, um, uh a pushback against the law and to have the law voted down whether by the knesset israel's parliament or in the supreme court now, why is this law so important? Uh, because, for, uh, first of all, the reason it wasn't necessary to add in equality in the nation-state law is because Israel's um, Declaration of Independence includes that. And Israel's Declaration of Independence is used as a legal document by the Supreme Court in making rulings. So the fact that equality of all citizens is in Israel's Declaration of Independence, it was not necessary to be put in this nation state law it already exists right it, it wasn't being changed the nation state law is critical because israel's supreme court little by little has been hammering away at the jewish character of the state of israel using the equality wording of israel's declaration of independence meaning there is a anti-jewish agenda within left-wing uh, organizations and politicians in Israel to have Israel stop being a Jewish state and instead just be a state like any other state just with a, p a potential majority of Jews who live here. Meaning that there should not be any laws, any laws whatsoever that have to deal with the Jewish people. For instance, one law that the Supreme Court just, just uh, knocked down was uh, a Passover law where uh, hospitals were only allowed to have kosher for Passover food in hospitals, all right? Now, what's the reason that law exists in Israel? Well, it doesn't mean no one can eat on Passover. There will be food in the hospitals for everyone to eat. It just ensured that for religious Jews in the, religious, in the Jewish state of Israel to be able to be around food in the hospital, that the food of the hospitals should be kosher for Passover. Those of you who do not un, are unfamiliar with Jewish law, so those who follow Jewish law, Passover, we're not allowed to we're not allowed to eat non-kosher food. We're not even allowed to see non-kosher food. So if I'm living in Perth 
Australia and I go into a supermarket, so obviously I'm going to see non-kosher food, right? Nothing I could do about it. That that's life. Law is not the law is not there for me to 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 not be able to not do something I can't not do. But in the Jewish state of Israel, um, it's possible that we have the structure where everyone bet everyone is would be fine, and then the Jewish population that follows Jewish law would be able to benefit meaning food will be available for all, and they just ensure that during those seven days of Passover, it happens to be kosher for Passover, so there's no issue for religious Jews to be in the hospital and get care in the hospital. And the Supreme Court ruled, uh, shot down this law, right, based on that it's not equal. So that's just one example of how the justice system in Israel with the Supreme Court is little by little eroding the Jewish character of the state of Israel, where we thought that um, we would be in the state's where it is for the Jewish people to have their right to their own homeland and be safe in our own homeland, where everyone else can live and have freedom and equality, well, there is the agenda to erase that. And it just happens to be a state where, like France, like Australia, where there are no special laws that pertain to the Jewish population um, in, in order to give it the Jewish character of the state. And again, it's just as like France or England, where it happens to have a majority Jewish population. So this nation state law was meant to be a legal document so that this, when, when issues uh, that would deal with the Jewish character of the state of Israel would come up in the Supreme Court, they would have this document, this legal document saying, this is the nation state of the Jewish people. Hence, these laws are fine because they strengthen the Jewish character of the state of Israel. And the reason they worked so hard on this law is because without this law, the Supreme Court would continue the already uh, pushed forward agenda of eroding the Jewish character of the state of Israel by knocking down laws and not allowing parliament to pass new laws that are about strengthening the Jewish character and defending the Jewish people in our own Jewish state of Israel. I hope that gives a little more background and understanding. Certainly. Thank you, Avi. Now, we'll, we'll take one more question from Terry. Uh, apologies to Gary and David. We do like to finish sort of close to time. So, Terry, please unmute yourself and ask your question. Uh, thanks for your talk. Um, I can't tell you how much of it I agreed with and how often I was clapping. Um, one thing that resonates with me more than uh, anything else you said is the question of the two-state solution not being the two-state solution. There is no solution in creating a, a Palestinian state. We all know that. The problem is that when you look worldwide, even Israel's friends uh, uh, in the political world always always say we support Israel and of course we support the two-state solution. Uh, is there an Israeli government, will there be an Israeli government that actually uh, adopts the reality uh, of the current situation and uh, says, look, we no longer believe in this. We're not prepared to go along with it. Yeah, great question, Terry. And listen, we had the closest government ever just uh, when when Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu was prime minister and Trump was uh, president like two years ago before the elections, um, where we finally had a, not, not just the agreement within most of Israel's government, but also with the support of the United States of America, understanding that not only is the two-state solution not a solution to a problem, but actually that doesn't even recognize the reality on the ground. So it can't solve anything because it can't even be implemented. And that was the first time where sovereignty in Judea and Samaria was the public policy of an Israeli government and uh, the U.S. government. Now, are we ever going to come to a place where, again, we're going to have an Israeli government and a U.S. government together at the same time for us to be able to implement sovereignty? Well, I hope so. When it will happen, I don't know. But again, I'm a big, again, like I told you, I'm a realistic optimist. I'm also a believer in the one above. Um, and because I know the reality on the ground is that we will never have peace until we do have sovereignty in Judea and Samaria, right? The only time the Muslim world is going to get the message to stop terrorizing all of us in Israel and Australia and America is when we stand up for ourselves and our God-given rights and even the right to live and not, not allow their terror is when, and part of that, the symbolic and very real act of Israel applying sovereignty in Judea and Samaria, letting the Arab Muslim world, there will never be a state called Palestine. 
um, and, and the Jews having freedom of worship uh, and access on the Temple Mount. That will bring peace. So it's going to happen. The question to me is not if, but when. And like I tell my mother, because I try to be a good Jewish son and talk to my mother, and she raises the issues and her concerns all the time about reality, and she's one of my biggest fans, and she's always, what, this is an issue, so how are we going to get out of it, right? Oh, things are getting bad. And I like to tell my mother, Ima, things are going to get good, but things are going to get a lot worse before they get better. So again, as, as a believing Jew, as a student of history, we have to, one, understand unexpected things happen, Right? All the time, think bad things happen, and then unexpected things happen that, that turn things around. So we can never lose hope. No matter how bad things are going, never lose hope. Um, uh, and, and, and the second thing is, again, then as a believing Jew, and believing that the Jewish people being back here finally, and rebuilding our ancestral homeland as the sovereign for the first time in 2,000 years, developing Israel to be one of the most well-respected, powerful, not just militarily, but economically, countries in the world, and we did this in only 70 years, well, I do believe we're in the path of, of, of moving forward to even better times. That doesn't mean we're not going to have bad times in the meantime. And in terms of the world, um, listen, the world has been wanting to have Israel destroyed since 1948. Do you know how, do you, I mean, just, I mean, most of you are older than me, and I don't know how many of you were, were alive or know the history of the vote for the UN partition vote. Israel had to work extremely hard. The Jewish people, there was no Israel. The Jewish leaders had to work extremely hard to get the votes of the world, even to have the partition plan. And many of our so-called friends, they, they didn't want to vote for it. And even after the vote, I mean, many people do not understand this. Today, we look at the world and we say, America is our best friend. Well, after 1948, America was not our best friend. Russia was Israel's best friend. All right? On a historic level, America did not support Israel until after we won the 1967 Six-Day War, right? which also shows you that geopolitics is not about justice. It's not about friends. It's about interests. It was only when America saw that Israel miraculously beat back the whole Arab Muslim world in a miraculous war that can't even be taught at West Point because there's no logic to it. It's only then that, Israel, that America said, okay, now we're siding with the good, we're siding with the strong boys. We're going to support Israel. Until that time, Israel had, had, had to run around between Russia and France. We didn't have big America before 1967. So the bottom line is even though the world has wanted Israel to be destroyed and not even to exist since 1948, we're still here. We're getting stronger every day, even with ups and downs. And we cannot be bothered by the pressure of the world. We have to be focused on our own goals and our own um, and our own just uh, future. I don't pay. I, I, I pay attention to the world in order to call out the world, but then I give over the message, folks. Spread the message of truth and the justice in our cause, in our identity, in our what we're doing here in Israel, which is a blessing to every Arab Muslim who lives in Israel. Focus. <laughs> they focused on what we're achieving. They focus on the goal. And forget about the noise of the world. That's always going to be noise from the world. We're, we're, we're going to achieve, we've succeeded the, regardless of the noise and the problems of world politics. So don't let that get you down. Be proud in your Jewish identity. If you, I don't know if everyone's Jewish or not. Be proud in your Christian identity if you're Christian. It's our identities that push us forward and not to let the outside world influence and change us. But it's our strong identity and who we are and, and, and what our purpose is and feeling pride in the Jewish state of Israel that will push us forward to succeed, both as the state of Israel and as the Jewish people, regardless of where you're living. And my final point, and I have to push this out there for all the Jews out there listening, please, please, please start thinking of coming home. Please, please, please. This is where we need you. This is where our future is. And I think nowhere, no, with each day, we're seeing the signs more and more that even though, I mean, I, I, I was blessed to grow up in America, the 70s, 80s, and 90s, life was great. Not very little anti-Semitism, Jewish American, American Jew, right? That was the argument. Life was great. Little by little, we're realizing history's repeating itself. History is repeating itself. Yeah. And every few years, the Jews had to migrate. We were kicked out of Poland, kicked out of France, kicked out of Britain, kicked out of the Arab world, kicked, kicked out of Germany. Come home. Start planning. <laughs> At least start planning. At least start planning. And let me know if you need help. 
and let me know when you get here. We have our challenges. We have our problems. Nothing's perfect. But again, it's just noise. It's about us being focused on our true, our true purpose, our true identity, and moving forward, trying to make the best of life, which life is never perfect, no matter where you are or what you're doing. And, uh, and on that inspirational note, Avi, you'll, uh, we want to say thank you. We do need to finish up. Uh, Avi, thanks so much. Uh, everything that you've said resonates with this audience, I can tell you. Um, your depth of understanding is fabulous and you articulate it so well. I'll just mention again, uh, thepulseofisrael.com. Uh, if people like what they see, they can go to your, your website and see a lot more of this. Um, and I imagine, Avi, if, uh, if people are inclined to donate, you wouldn't, wouldn't say no. Yeah, well, for, yeah, first of all, Alan, again, thank you and David for having me on your our platform. Very, very grateful and thankful for that. And I, get, I, I imagine most of you know, online censorship is, is growing by the day and we are being hit every angle, every day from a different direction. My whole company was deplatformed from Facebook. They put us back on, but any day we could be totally off of Facebook. Vimeo deplatformed us. PayPal just deplatformed us. We're not able to get donations from PayPal. So, so first of all, the best way, if you are interested in continuing to hear the messages from, from my voice, from the Pulse of Israel, the best way is to sign up for our newsletter at thepulseofisrael.com. Would be wonderful to have you guys on board as, as subscribers. Um, and then anytime you have questions or comments, just email them. I'll get to them as soon as I can. And yes, any donation is greatly, greatly welcomed because uh, uh, the online world is not our friend. And uh, it's, a it's a daily challenge to, to ensure that we're continuing this work to get these messages out there to people. So Okay, thank you. Thank you, Avi. Pulse of Israel, frontline videos from the Holy Land. Support our work by donating today.